The code sets up high standards of performance for motion picture producers. It states the considerations which good taste and community value make necessary in this universal form of entertainment. Hi, so that old man that you just heard was Will Hayes talking about the importance of the motion picture production code, and that recording is from 1930. So Will Hayes was a U.S. Postmaster General and an instrumental figure in creating and enforcing the Motion Picture Production Code of 1930. The Motion Picture Production Code, also known as the Hayes Code because of Will Hayes, (laughs) prohibited a lot of things, and one of those things that was prohibited was any open representation of queer people on screen. Even though the code was mostly abandoned in the 1960s, it's had a pretty significant impact on the ways that filmmakers use narrative, visual, or vocal cues to signal queerness and the ways in which audiences have been trained to pick up on these cues, whether or not they even consciously realize that. I'm Allie, I'm a graduate student at Georgetown studying English and film, and on this podcast, The Queer Code, we look into the history of queer-coded or subtextually queer characters in classic and contemporary American film. Each episode focuses on two films from one genre. So this episode is looking at animated Disney princess slash animal adventure movies. Um, There's a little bit of a different structure going on here. I decided not to limit this episode to only two films because there's so much Disney and like a whole bunch of it is just super gay. So we're going to look more broadly at the role of queer-coded Disney villains in a couple of the like core Disney films and the classics. And then we're going to talk about the more recent movie Frozen and its potentially queer-coded protagonist. It all depends on who you ask. So this episode does have a co-host, kind of, um, for pandemic-related reasons. Our co-host is only here for the second half of the episode when we talk about Frozen and the potential problems in reading queer coding into Disney films. So the section on queer coded Disney villains is it's just me. Also, I asked three other queer students in my grad program how they felt about Disney villains being coded as queer and about gayness and Disney just more generally. And we're going to hear their different responses to that question at different places throughout the episode. I wanted to do this episode on Disney because I am fascinated by the relationship between gay people and Disney movies. There are a lot of queer Disney fans out there. And that's something that I think is super interesting because Disney is like the heterosexual princess romance factory and like in most of the movies like the entire goal of the movie (laughs) is like a heterosexual marriage so some questions we talk about in this episode are where do queer people fit into these stories or do we not (laughs) fit into these stories um to what extent can queer people reclaim or just claim aspects of disney films and then from a very basic human perspective, just like, what do you do as an LGBT Disney fan or Disney employee 
when the media that you love and a lot of the time the media that you were raised watching and are like nostalgic about um kind of hates you (laughs) or at least is very uncomfortable with you and like pretty heavily limits your existence in the kinds of worlds that are created and also the kinds of products and worlds that are sold because branding and consumerism are very big parts of any discussion of Disney and especially any discussion of the relationship between Disney and LGBT communities. So we are going to move to part one of this episode, which is queer-coded Disney villains. So when I think of Disney, I normally think of like a very conservative company that is promoting like middle class traditional American family values. Um, And that is Disney's brand today and has been Disney's brand for a while. But Disney actually didn't begin that way or it didn't begin like completely that way. In its early stages, Disney was not necessarily inherently linked to some idea of like wholesome content. So in the 1920s, Mickey Mouse and other early Disney cartoons and shows actually involved a lot of jokes about breaking rules and rebelling and sex. But Disney got a lot of flack (laughs) for being inappropriate. And after the motion picture production code was established in the early 30s, Disney kind of revamped the Mickey Mouse image into the much tamer cartoon character that most people probably think of when they think of Mickey Mouse. So one example of this change is, so there's this one character, she's a cow, her name was Clarabelle. And apparently early Disney shows had a lot of like utter jokes about this cow. And that was not allowed in the new motion picture production code approved Disney. So they completely switched up the animation for this cow character. A Time Magazine article from February 16th, 1931 wrote that, quote, The motion picture producers and directors of America last week announced that, because of complaints of many censor boards, the famed utter, (laughs) was famous, of the cow in the Mickey Mouse cartoons was now banned. Cows in Mickey Mouse pictures in the future will have small or invisible udders, quite unlike the gargantuan organ whose antics of late have shocked some and convulsed others. Already, censors have dealt sternly with Mickey Mouse. He and his associates, his associates, do not drink, smoke, or caper suggestively. So this changed a lot of how Disney animation, especially animal animation, functioned. So like the romance between Mickey and Minnie Mouse, which before was like very sexual and like very sexually aggressive. Like honestly, Mickey Mouse was like very rapey in early 1920s cartoons. So that became... Like, they got much more, like, sweet romance storylines. Like, they, like, play piano together. Mickey gets many flowers and, like, stuff like that. And this was all part of Disney revamping its image to make Disney and wholesome family values kind of synonymous with each other. But one of the effects of this new image was that all the animated characters could not be drawn in any way that could be interpreted as overtly sexual. Because, like we saw with Clarabelle's utter, uh, that was considered inappropriate. 
So, like, in order to communicate to viewers which characters were male and which characters were female, Disney had to rely on, like, very campy performances of gender and of ideas of masculinity and femininity. So, like, Minnie Mouse is the exact same drawing <laughs> as Mickey Mouse. Like, they're, they're the same mouse. It's just that Minnie has, like, heels and bows and polka dots and a dress and all of the feminine things you can imagine because that's the main way that they can gender her as female without getting too sexual. And there is some sexualization of the bodies of the animated human characters. Like, most of the princess characters have disproportionately, like, enormous heads and eyes and very small torsos and also, like, huge boobs. But at the same time, because Disney is doing the whole, like, family values thing, there couldn't be too much overt sexuality. So most of the Disney animated human characters do similar kinds of over-the-top gender performances. And the Disney villains do this the most. And this is where the queer coding of Disney villains comes in. In this book called Tinkerbells and Evil Queens, The Walt Disney Company from the Inside Out, by Sean Griffin. He's a professor at Southern Methodist University, and he used to work on ad campaigns for Disney. Anyway, he talks about how Disney tries to make heterosexual genders and heterose or heterosexual binary genders and heterosexual relationships seem, quote, natural and inevitable. So the villains, who are the enemies of nice, natural, heterosexual romance, they're the ones who, like, do gender wrong by performing it incorrectly or unnaturally. So they take the basic gender roles, the same ones that the heroines do, right? And then they just like go crazy with them in a way that the film categorizes as bad and like uses as a signifier to show that like these are the bad characters. So an example of this is the way that a lot of female villains perform an idea of femininity in a way that's very different from the femininity of the like heroines or princesses or whatever. So Griffin makes what I think is a very convincing case for reading female villains in Disney movies as essentially drag queens. So this is something that's pretty evident with a character like Ursula in The Little Mermaid because she was literally modeled after the drag queen divine. But I think it's also something you can see in a character like Maleficent or the evil queen in Snow White or Cruella de Vil. So Griffin supports this by talking about how these female villains are all like total divas and they have this really over-the-top makeup that makes their faces look like very angular very dramatic um and it just once I read this I rewatched a lot of these scenes with these characters in them and I was like oh my god their makeup looks so much like drag queen makeup um and normally like a Disney princess doesn't normally have visible makeup at all but the villains have like yeah it's it's like a it's like drag queen makeup um, and also, these villains are always very, like, dramatic, and they have a certain style that is very much in line with drag queen performances in terms of, like, inflection and tone and everything. So I think Cruella de Vil is a really good example of this kind of overly performed drag queen-like female villain. So we're going to listen to a clip from the 1961 film, 101 Dalmatians. And this is the clip that introduces Corella to the story. And I really like this scene 
because one of the leading ladies, Anita, is in the scene as well. And I think it's really cool to hear the differences in Anita's voice and Corella's voice and in their delivery. I think it really shows what Griffin is talking about in terms of the different performances of femininity that a Disney heroine gives and that a female Disney villain gives. Must be Cruella, your dearly devoted old schoolmate, Cruella de Vil. That's it. Cruella de Vil, Cruella de Vil. If she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. Oh, to Roger. see her is to take a sudden chill. Oh. Cruella, Cruella. She's like a spider waiting for the kill. Roger, she'll hear you. Cruella de Vil. Let her in, Nanny. Anita, darling. How are you? Miserable, darling, as usual. Perfectly wretched. Where are they? Where are they? For heaven's sakes, where are they? Who, Cruella? I don't... The puppies, the puppies. <laughs> No time for games. Where are the little brutes? Oh, it'll be at least three weeks. No rushing these things, you know. <laughs> Anita, you're such a wit. Here, dog. Here. Here, dog. Cruella, isn't that a new fur coat? <laughs> My only true love, darling. I live for furs. I worship furs. Uh, after all, is there a woman in all this wretched world who doesn't? Oh, I'd like a nice fur, but there are so many other things. Sweet, simple Anita. <laughs> I know, I know. This hurried little house is your dream castle. <laughs> and poor Roger is your bold and fearless Sir Galahad. <laughs> Oh, Cruella. <laughs> and then, of course, you have your little spotted friends. Ah, yes. Yes, I must say, such perfectly beautiful coats. Won't you have some tea, Cruella? Now, I've got to run, darling. Now, let me know when the puppies arrive. You will, won't you, dear? Yes, Cruella. I... Now, don't forget it, to promise. See you in three weeks. Tirio, Tirio, darling. Over-the-top performances, like the one we just listened to, are a way of kind of signaling to the audience that these characters are, like, bad in some way. Like, it's really hard to convey villainy and evil to children <laughs> in a children's movie when you can't actually show the characters doing, like, really bad things, like murdering people. So you have to include signals in other ways, and gender is one of the ways that Disney does this. So we have Cruella in this clip just kind of being like too much. She's too dramatic. She wants to take in the puppies, but not because she wants to like mother them, because she wants to like skin them into a coat. And she doesn't want the kind of like house and husband that Anita has. And she's just, she's 
doing gender wrong and she's doing femininity wrong again according to disney so it's safe to assume that she's also doing other things wrong like maybe she's the villain of the movie and something about the way that cruella performs in this scene and ursula performs in little mermaid or maleficent or evil queen how they are and the way that they perform femininity is not natural or is not framed as natural in the same way that the femininity of the like princess heroine character is. Is it recording? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Luke Tomley. I think so here's the here's the thing is I definitely am for the gay villains. I've never I I I think um because like the zero point of like straightness or like heterosexuality is such a norm like especially in movies I think the given as a kid was always it was never a question like I never questioned sexuality be, uh, in Disney films because it was always like sort of a zero point like yes these are straight characters especially in like uh, the protagonist role I never like would have ever thought about um, there being a queer protagonist in any sort of Disney film. It just wasn't something I thought about. And for that reason, I think I'm kind of adverse to the idea of there being, like, a queer protagonist. It seems incorrect. It seems, like, wrong to me. And I also just kind of live my life um, in the way that's, like, I don't, I don't, um, I don't think that, like, subsuming uh, queerness into, like, the, that zero point or that, point of origin that would be the protagonist in like a queer Disney sense does anything for me like I think it would just seem fake and sort of um I don't know it seems it seems disingenuous um I remember like my uncle the queer uncle who also by the way introduced me to musical theater he cast me in a Gilbert and Sullivan very light opera company production of Princess Ida I was amazing aside from the time that I, I did have an accident on stage as a small child. It's okay. <laughs> but you came back from but it. But I came back, you from, came it, back from it. Broadway bound. Oh yeah. It was amazing. But <laughs> he also had like a lot of VHS tapes that like he gave to me because he got rid of his VHS player before um, my family did, which was like Cats, the musical, not Disney, but gay. Um, and also The Lion King, which I think has one of the most clearly coded like villains. Um, or clearly, cl clearly like coded as being gay villains in Disney movies, which is obviously what's his name? Uncle Mufa Scar. Uncle Scar. Yeah, but like I, I it's never that I, I, I never, I never didn't. It's not that I necessarily identified with him, but only till recently when I was looking back at this movie did I realize that he was the bad guy. If that makes <laughs> sense. Like I really like didn't. Like you always were rooting for. Yeah, him. like I was always just like I was always just like oh like he yeah I did, I did, I genuinely didn't understand him as being the evil, like for, I thought he was like a family member who was kind of like rude, you know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and like I really I think I completely misinterpreted the scene where he definitely kills, the Lion King. Um, and so I, I think like I, I it's like it's it's uh it's kind of a thing where it's like I'm not even sure that I ever read like the the queer I think I read those characters as being coded as queer before I even read them as being villains. Like I would even say the same about Ursula. Before I thought she was a villain, I thought she was fabulous. Or like queer, you know? And so I think yeah, I don't think I'm for like the protagonist.
male Disney villain characters tend to be more in line with the idea of the sissy villain, which is a kind of homophobic stereotype about like gay men being effeminate and predatory. And this is a stereotype that's pretty common in film history, and we've actually talked about it in the episode on slashers with Psycho and the Norman Bates character. But just for like a recap on the sissy villain character and how it functions and its specific history within Disney, we are going to listen to a clip from a 2014 documentary called Do I Sound Gay? Do I Sound Gay was directed by David Thorpe and it's starring David Thorpe with a screenplay by David Thorpe and Maeve O'Boyle. It's a really interesting documentary about like gay voice and what it is, its history, and the kinds of stigmas that are attached to it and the problems that can arise because of it. I definitely recommend it. So the scene we're going to watch starts out with Thorpe talking to one of his friends in a bar about what kind of gay man Thorpe sounds like. And then the film cuts to Richard Barrios, a film historian, talking about the history of the sissy villain and how it shows up in different Disney films, and it shows a bunch of clips from Disney films, and the clips are from Peter Pan, The Jungle Book, The Great Mouse Detective, Aladdin, and The Lion King. Like, your way of speaking to me connotes, like, the subtext of, like, the learned gay character. And so do you feel... So I'm still the learned gay character that I always was. Yes. <laughs> yes. You're still nailing the learned gay character. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm trapped in that role. A I mean, there are bit. worse roles to fill than the learned gay character. You're not, like, the... You're not the um, evil gay character. But see, sometimes I worry that I sound like the evil gay character. Well, I mean, we all have our moments. <laughs> it's the same obvious pattern, Laura. If McPherson weren't muscular and handsome in a cheap sort of way, you'd see through him in a second. Whereas in the 30s, gay characters were seen maybe a little more peripheral and harmless, uh, starting with Clifton Webb and Laura, you can see where they really start becoming more dangerous. Murder is my favorite crime. I I write about about it regularly. Snide, supercilious, superior. He's so clearly gay, it's sort of this torturous jealousy. Is he jealous of the male character or of the woman character? But he does it all kind of through his voice as much as anything else. And he played a killer, correct? From the 1940s on, a lot of gay characters either get killed or are killers. And a lot of that begins with Laura. Captain Hook was sort of a Clifton Webb type character. And so there was this in Peter Pan, and it kind of got carried across uh, the next decade to the Jungle Book. I thought perhaps you were entertaining someone up there in your coils. Coils? And of course, Shere Khan is evil. After Shere Khan, you get uh, a few more of, of, of the male characters. Oh, my dear Bartholomew, I'm afraid that you have gone and upset me. You know what happens when someone upsets me. Perhaps I can divine a solution to this thorny problem. Oh, I shall practice my curtsy. 
these voices of the Disney villains, uh, which sort of have gay or proto-gay qualities to them, if you think of very, very young children, you know, they could be growing up with the idea that uh, real evil or, or villainy uh, can be connoted by a gay man's voice. Well, as far as brains go, I got the lion's share, but when it comes to brute strength, I'm afraid I'm at the shallow end of the gene pool. <sighs> There's one in every family, sir. In other sections of Do I Sound Gay, Thorpe gets into the specific types of pronunciations of certain vowels and sounds that are usually kind of problematically associated with gay men. And the style of speaking is part of the characterizations present in most male Disney villains, particularly the ones that they quote in that clip. Male Disney villains also sometimes have more traditionally feminine styles of dressing or traditionally feminine interests. So Governor Ratcliffe, the villain in Pocahontas, wears a lot of pink and he kind of has like these pigtails going on with like pink hair bow things. Tamatoa in Moana is a sparkly crab who wants to be shiny and he sings an entire song about being shiny. Prince John in Robin Hood likes pretty jewels and he has this weirdly close relationship with his mom, which is another factor of the sissy villain characterization. So these male Disney villains definitely are building off of an existing film tradition of effeminate gay villainy. But there is also this whole history of queer employees working on Disney films and sometimes purposely conceptualizing these villain characters as gay and purposely animating certain male villain characters in ways that kind of like riff off of this sissy villain stereotype. Andreas Deha is a good example of this. He was the lead animator behind Jafar and Aladdin, Scar and the Lion King, and Gaston and Beauty and the Beast. And Deha is gay himself, and he's talked about drawing Jafar as a gay man to give him, quote, elegance and theatrical qualities. <laughs> so this kind of feeds into one of the questions I talked about earlier, where gay Disney fans and gay Disney employees have kind of a strange relationship with these queer-coded villains, where in some ways you can very easily see these villains as being homophobic, but in other ways, I mean, I don't think that Deha conceptualized Jafar and animated Jafar as an effeminate gay man as a way to be homophobic. I think that that was something that he thought was an interesting and cool part of the character. So it's kind of like a weird position to be in. When talking about gay Disney employees, a lot of people also reference Howard Ashman. He co-wrote with Alan Menken the songs for The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. Ashman was gay and he died in the early 90s of AIDS-related complications right before Beauty and the Beast came out in theaters. Beauty and the Beast is actually dedicated to him. There's some disagreement among his co-workers and his family on how much his life impacted his songwriting, but a lot of people have pointed out parallels between like homophobia and AIDS panic and the characterization of the Beast in Beauty and the Beast and the town's treatment of him. Specifically in the mob song, where the villagers are like literally grabbing pitchforks to go kill the beast and in the song the lyrics are like 
uh, he'll come stalking us to sacrifice our children. And there's the line, we don't like what we don't understand. In fact, it scares us. And this monster is mysterious at least. So Beauty and the Beast is a really interesting case because some of the creators behind Beauty and the Beast have said that Ashman helped shape the Beast as a character, as opposed to just making Beauty and the Beast a story about Belle. Some people claim that Ashman helped turn it into a story about the Beast and Belle. Honestly, I think Beauty and the Beast is more the Beast story than Belle's because he actually like changes and she just kind of stays the same. But I don't know if Ashman was intentionally or consciously writing parallels to his own life, but the narrative of the Beast and Beauty and the Beast is a lot more similar to the narrative of a Disney villain than it is to the narrative of a Disney hero. A lot of the time, a Disney villain is a social outcast of some sort who, like, lives on the outskirts of town and it's isolated from the community, like... Ursula lives in a weird cave, and so does Scar, and Hades literally lives in hell, and, you know, Cruella de Vil, an evil queen and Maleficent, they don't, like, have a lot of friends or community. And there's also normally something about the villain's appearance or their magical abilities that people find off-putting and upsetting, and there's a lot of ostracization that's not necessarily as common of a theme for the hero. I mean, the heroine is normally different in some way, but she's a lot less of a stigmatized outcast than the villain is. And this is pretty similar to the beast narrative in Beauty and the Beast. He's a beast <laughs> and lives in his weird enchanted castle and has no friends and all of that. But I mean, the beast does end up in a heterosexual marriage, so I don't know that I would really think of him as like a queer protagonist. Um, the possibility of a queer Disney protagonist is something that comes up much more frequently in discussions around the 2013 film, Frozen. The snow glows white on the tonight not a footprint to be seen a kingdom of isolation and it looks like i'm the queen the wind is howling like this swirling storm inside couldn't keep it in heaven knows i tried don't let them in don't let them see So Frozen is a musical animated Disney princess movie that was released in 2013. It was directed by Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee with a screenplay by Jennifer Lee. Originally, Frozen was based on Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale, The Snow Queen, but in development, like, things got switched up a lot, and basically the only similarities to, like, Frozen and The Snow Queen are that, like, it's winter in both stories and there's, like, snow. 
Uh, the producer, Peter DeLoco, said, There is snow, and there is ice, and there is a queen. But other than that, we depart from it, the Snow Queen, quite a bit. Frozen is set in this, like, fake kingdom thing called Arendelle. Um, it kind of has, like, a Norwegian vibe a little bit. So the king and queen of Arendelle have two daughters, Elsa and Anna. Elsa has these magical powers where she can, like, freeze things, and her powers are, like, super vague. Like, she can just kind of do any ice-related things, including, like, making a live snow monster which is fine we just we suspend our disbelief we accept it so sometimes elsa is able to control her powers and sometimes they come out when she's like feeling particularly emotional so child elsa and anna are playing and elsa accidentally <laughs> freezes anna's brain <laughs> or something so her parents naturally take them to these like troll rock beings to heal Anna's frozen brain. And the, the troll rock man, the head troll, like knows what to do and he like removes the ice from Anna's brain. <laughs> and he also like removes all memories of Elsa's powers from Anna's brain. And it tells Elsa's parents that like, Elsa's powers could be dangerous and like they need to be careful. So the parents are like, don't worry, she will never have friends or a life and no one will ever know she has these powers. So the parents start like isolating her and trying to like teach her how to like control her powers by not feeling anything ever and like no one else knows. And Elsa and Anna grow apart because like obviously they're not allowed to spend time together. The parents die while sailing, weirdly enough, but years pass and Elsa is Elsa and Anna are adults now. And Elsa is like about to be crowned queen. And so like for the first 30 minutes of the film, Elsa's always wearing like these like glove things to help her hide her secret ice powers. And she's like really nervous about being around people at the coronation because she doesn't want her ice power secret to get out. But the coronation happens and she doesn't like freeze anyone uh, and it's fine. And Elsa and Anna see each other at the party afterward and they have like a like friendly sister moment thing. Anna meets a boy at the party, his name is Hans, and they decide to get married that night. And then Elsa, like, doesn't give her blessing to the marriage, and she and Anna have, like, a big fight, and then Elsa gets emotional, and because she's emotional, she starts, like, accidentally freezing things, which makes her freak out, so she runs away into the snow and, like, the winter that she's accidentally suddenly created. And this is where she sings the song, Let It Go. And she builds herself an ice castle and she decides that she's not going to hide her powers and she's going to embrace who she is. So Anna goes looking for Elsa and she meets this like clumsy blonde boy with a reindeer. He and the reindeer have like a really weird relationship that I don't understand the point of, but whatever. This guy is like her, he's Anna's like adventure companion slash love triangle, love interest, as she's looking for Elsa. Anna finds Elsa about halfway through the movie, like, surprisingly quickly, and then they have another fight where Elsa's like, I can't control my powers, and Anna's like, you can, and then Elsa's like, no, and then she accidentally shoots, like, a bolt of ice <laughs> into Anna's heart, so Anna's dying, so she goes back to the trolls, obviously, because the trolls, for some reason, know things. And they tell her that this can be healed by an act of true love. 
So blonde boy, who at this point is like into Anna, he like takes Anna back to Hans because they both think that Hans is Anna's true love or whatever. But meanwhile, Hans has kidnapped and imprisoned Elsa in the Arendelle castle. So Anna like goes to Hans and she's like, our true love needs to heal the frozenness or whatever. And then he's like, but surprise, I don't love you. And also, I'm the bad guy of this movie. And then it's like a moment where you're like, whoa, what? And then you think about it for like two seconds and you realize that the twist like makes no sense at all. But the movie's still going, so it doesn't matter. Don't think about it. This movie works so much better if you just like don't think about it too hard. So then Hans leaves Anna to die and he lies to everyone and he says that Elsa killed Anna and that he and Anna got married on her deathbed, which means he now rules Arendelle. Anna escapes from the room Hans has locked her in and she's like trying to get to the blonde guy. Oh, the blonde guy's name is Kristoff. I didn't say that before. So like because Kristoff is like the only other man in the movie, she's like, oh my God, he's my true love. Oops, I have to go find him. So Kristoff is like running to Anna in slow motion and Anna is like almost fully like an icicle at this point. But then Anna sees Hans trying to kill Elsa and she uses her dying moment to stop Hans and to save Elsa. And then she like freezes completely. But then this is the act of true love because Anna loves Elsa and then she like thaws out into a person again. Yeah, and the movie has a like not very well thought out moment where Elsa's like, wait, love is how I control ice powers, my ice powers. And then it's summer again because of love. It, anyway, so Elsa's in control of her powers now and everyone's happy except for Hans because like, he's the villain. And then the movie ends. So Frozen came out in, I think, November of 2013, and throughout, like, late 2013 and early 2014, there were a bunch of internet hot takes about how Elsa is gay, actually, and most of that comes from the lyrics in Let It Go, and also from Elsa's, like, journey from repression of some part of herself that she was born with to, like, accepting herself for who she is. In January 2014, an English professor at San Diego State University, uh, Angel Daniel Matos, wrote a, an article called Conceal, Don't Feel, A Queer Reading of Disney's Frozen. And this was like one of many, many, many hot takes. Anyway, in this article, he makes his case for Elsa being a queer character and he writes... Queen Elsa is approached by some viewers as a queer or gay character, not only because she doesn't engage in a romantic relationship in the film, but also because she's forced by her parents to suppress and hide the powers that she's born with. Although the movie implies that her parents desperately try to conceal Elsa's powers because of the danger that they impose to herself and to others, this does not justify the degree to which they pre prevent Elsa from having any human contact whatsoever. Furthermore, the fact that Elsa's parents view suppression and isolation as solutions further emphasizes notions of the infamous queer closet. Rather than assisting Elsa in learning how to hone her powers, they teach her how to conceal, not feel. 
I think it's also worthy to point out that Elsa's treatment is also eerily reminiscent of practices that take place during the process of gay conversion therapy, in which subjects are conditioned through meditative and repetitive processes to suppress certain urges and desires that occur naturally. So, yeah, that's kind of the general, it's kind of the gist of the Elsa is gay internet discourse. Um, But there was also, like, so the whole idea of having powers being a metaphor for queerness is something that is already pretty, like, common in a lot of superhero comics and films. I think the X-Men franchise probably does this, like, the most blatantly in both comics and the like X-Men trilogy from the early 2000s and the more recent films. But most superhero narratives do this in some way. So what's interesting about Elsa, though, in terms of the previous discussion of gay villainy in Disney films, is that Elsa was supposedly, according to Disney, originally conceptualized as a villain character. She was going to be the evil Snow Queen, and the original sketches show her as a much more, like, androgynous looking character. She has, like, short spiky hair, and she fits a lot more cleanly into the tradition of queer-coded villains. And Elsa originally being written as a villain character makes me a little bit more likely to read her as queer, because there are strands of the whole Disney gay villainy thing that make it through the rewrite of Elsa as a hero, I think. So, like, Elsa is isolated from the community, and she's misunderstood, mostly due to things kind of beyond her control. She has, like, weird and nondescript powers, which is not normally a hero thing in Disney movies. That's normally a villain thing. Also, she doesn't have a love interest, which is unusual (laughs) for a Disney heroine. So, yeah. So, we're going to listen to a clip from a 2014 documentary called The story of Frozen, making a Disney animated classic. And this is like a really boring documentary. I don't recommend it. It is unnecessarily just so, so long. But we are going to listen to the one interesting section of it, which is songwriters Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez explaining what led to the rewriting of Elsa as a heroine instead of Elsa remaining the villain. At the time, Elsa was a villain. She was um, still probably coming down the mountain later with her army of evil snowmen to like terrorize the village. Um, so <laughs> we were still writing a villain song. And we started getting into the headspace of what you'd feel like if you were that isolated. Lock the gates. We'll reduce the staff. We will limit her contact with people keep her powers hidden from everyone. And we knew in this moment that she'd go through a transformation from repressed to letting her powers out and sort of trying to get away from society and and be who she really was. Uh, Hi, my name is Kimberly Roper. I'm a graduate student and um, that's sort of consuming my life right now. I think there's something to be said for both sides. On the one hand, I like can't we have both like queer heroes and queer villains and queer regular folk? <laughs> like yeah, absolutely. Like just like, a fully gay yeah, movie universe. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> or even just like yeah, not thinking of queer people as monoliths. Like yeah, 
like Disney villains are classically just like the most iconic parts of any film, like Ursula and Scar and or Hades maybe and her Hades. Hades. Oh my god, Hades. Yeah. Speaking of gay, Meg from Hercules. Oh my gosh, I was so queer for her. Oh my god, wait, me too. We're just gonna talk about what animated characters were you attracted to growing up? Belle, definitely. I was like terrified of Ursula, but also really into Ursula. They could have done. It was complicated. I feel like they could have done so much more with Ursula's character. I feel like they did a lot, but they maybe could have done more. I don't know. She was kind of doing the most. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's fair. What about you, though? Like, I wanted to know, like, her whole story. How she became an anatomically incorrect sea witch? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And and maybe maybe that, although I'm revising my opinion as I'm formulating it, which is fine, but, like, just the fact that, like, heroes often have, like, these well-established backstories and that villains just sort of are villainous with some sort of, like, like, implied, like, wrong in their past. But on the other hand, like, you don't need a re- you don't need a backstory for being queer, like. But it would be nice if there was more to them than just like, I'm a villain and I sing a villain song about yeah, villainy for yeah, fun. Yeah. Yeah. Just just more <laughs> queer representation. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, there's this whole thing about in the new Pixar movie. There's a Disney's first LGBT character. She's like a lesbian cop. Oh really? Yeah, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, it's and it's in the new Pixar movie Onward, I think. But okay, it's like, it's like a fantasy sort of like realm, and so she's not like a human figure. Oh, interesting. Um, and so I, I think maybe that's something. I know I know a lot of queer folks who sort of like. I feel like a lot of queer characters, queer villains in particular, are like never human but like human adjacent Mm -hmm. there's issues with that like is queerness like always going to be like alien or foreign or non-human fantastical yeah yeah but at the same time like like theoretically and again like there's a disconnect between queer theory and actual like queer humans (laughs) um but even just like i think queer theory would be like oh but like let's push the boundaries of heteronormativity like let's embrace the fantastic like let's just be I don't know, sexy lions. I couldn't think of anything else besides Scar. (laughs) Okay, so this next section is with our co-host for part of this episode, which is Ian. And we talk about Frozen and Disney villains and some of the more problematic elements of queer coding in Disney films. So we're doing the movie Frozen, which is like a musical princess movie, and our co-host today, remotely through Zoom, which is why our audio is a little weird, is Ian Jane. Ian. Allie, hello. Hey. Ian is the recent author of... Of a thesis. Um, can I remember my... defended thesis called... Called... So my... My thesis is called Queer Realities, colon, 21st Century Novels and the Boundaries of Utopia. So I am interested in, obviously, queer realities um, <laughs> and queer, queer fictions, um, but also I think something that comes up in the episode 
is like the boundary between fantasy and reality um, and how sort of like magic or things that seem impossible relate to queerness and how that sort of like intersects with the stories we tell about queer people. Um, okay, so Frozen. Frozen. I remember when I was watching the movie and I was watching Let It Go in theaters when I was in high school and like I didn't like like I didn't know I was gay but I knew that song was gay <laughs> you know what I mean and I was like that's something I was thinking about when I was thinking about gay Disney villains because the reason I think that so many because there is like a like weird queer attachment to like renaissance Disney mm -hmm. and like late 90s Disney villains as like yep. their characters like there's in like an attachment to that and it's like I think that kids <laughs> I have little experience with children we don't get along very well but <laughs> what I remember from being a child was like yeah there are some things that go over your head but there are some kinds of subtext that you do pick up on so like when I was talking to Luke he mentioned like registering a certain amount of like trying to think of the word um there was a certain recognition of queer villains as as queer like there's in a weird kind of sad way <laughs> the Disney villainy can serve as like queer representation subtextually for like queer kids growing up and that's why I posed the question to my like interviewees of like can we really have a queer protagonist and what does that look like which I'm interested in with Elsa because like the the villains in Disney movies are like ostracized and they're treated poorly most of the time because of some like difference right that they have to the other characters in the story maybe it's like how they look or how they talk or whatever but they're different and I think that that's something that registers with a lot of like queer kids and queer youth growing up like that feeling of isolation and ostracization and then seeing that on screen and then like seeing like like Disney villains are like so fun <laughs> you know or they used to be <laughs> um like there's so much fun and they can be like I don't know like like Ursula taking the like kind of disgust that the other characters treat her with and just like leaning into it yeah. and just being this like insanely fabulous I mean, it's kind of like a, octopus <laughs> like a reclamation almost like happening like in real time which is yeah yeah um, like you mentioned the element of difference and so one thing I was also thinking about was like most of these narratives are also magical in some way or sort of like supernatural um yeah which which at least for me was sort of like a primary source of like identification I guess as sort of like a closeted kid because it's like some other sort of like untapped world that has to remain in a lot of cases like a secret or is accessible oh. only to certain people you know wait um, expand on that yeah so like I was a huge um like I was a huge Harry Potter fan as a kid um, like, loved the books, loved the movies and everything. And I think one of the reasons, like, was not so much that I resonated with Harry, but, like, I resonated with this idea that things could be different. And, like, sometimes the way that things were different was um, masked in secrecy or accessible only to certain people, right? Um, I mean, which has been so sort of, like, interesting to sort of bring us back to, like, the present moment, 
what do you do with people who like like JK Rowling is like a turf, you know? <laughs> surprise, <laughs> surprise everyone. JK Rowling is a turf. <laughs> so it's like God. but it's like I remember when I was like 13 or something and like finally heard that Dumbledore is gay. To me that was like that like seemed important. I mean now obviously yeah. it seems less important. But like to me that was like, oh like there was something about this this person who's lauded as really wise and beneficent who like so that that thing is like similar to me. Um so I don't know. Like that I go back and forth on like how I feel about like the need for for representation because like I guess so much of what I was like reading and watching wasn't about queerness that I just sort of was like not really expecting to find it you know so like part of me is like why why should I search for this kind of representation and something that's not meant for that kind of thing yeah you know like part of me is like couldn't, wouldn't it be better to just have other kinds of representation? Yeah. But but, I, but then I, I sort of get, I, I, I get, I see the impulse, you know, like it's important to have representation everywhere. One, one thing to sort of like, that I'm thinking about now though, is like when you have one queer character or sort of like a queer baiting queer character in, in like a largely non-queer media text or something a film or a book like is that to what extent is that like normalizing that character you know what i mean like is it like normalizing like up to a point Mm -hmm. whereas if you have a piece of like queer media you can do a lot more i just like i wonder like what's the what's the value of both sides of those things i don't know yeah no that's a good point um like, I wonder, like, I would never really picked up on any of the Disney villains, maybe Ursula, um, but, like, I never really picked up on any of them, like, as specifically queer, maybe queer in, like, a very, very broad sense of just, like, non-normative. Um, so, I don't know, that that just, like, leads me back to this question of, like, what what are these films for children saying to children? Because children interpret them very differently. You know, it's just, like... Um, so to me, that's sort of like a like a more interesting area of like maybe you can do more with allegory than you can with like a literal representation. I don't know. I mean, or maybe that's just me like retrospectively trying to make make valid having to work with so much allegory for so long, you know? Yeah. Well, that is like um, uh, something Kennerly brought up in her interview was like. Um, so much of a lot of times if there is queer representation in a film or a tv show it's in a sci-fi film or tv show right or like some like like weird magical world like something that's not our world or a lot of times it'll be like it'll involve some kind of like like an animated character that's not human right like um or something like that where it does feel like it is like is this a cool like embracing of the possibilities of sci-fi and fantasy and magic and expanding what gender and sexuality look like in a different sort of world? Or is this reinforcing the idea that queer people can only exist not here, but somewhere else as something else? So that is like, 
yeah, and I do not have an answer <laughs> to that <Anyway>. question. <laughs> no, I think that's that's so true. But then it's also just a question of like, like if they do make Elsa gay, like, yeah. I also feel like the phrasing, the phrasing that I've been using of like making Elsa gay, like I go back and forth even on that because like who gets to decide if she's gay or not? You know, who gets to make her gay or not? Like. Did I gay her when my gay 17-year-old brain registered her as gay? Or, you know what I mean? Anyway, I don't know how to refer to it, but continue. (laughs) Like, I I think one of the things, sort of like off of um, Kennerly's point, and what you were just saying, like, what does it do to say, like, this this princess who doesn't actually exist, who lives in, like, a faraway magic kingdom, like... An Arendelle? (laughs) You can resonate with her. You know, it's just like... Yeah. Whereas what would have happened if something like the protagonist of Inside Out or something is gay, right? Like, it's just like, to me, like... Such a good movie to see all her emotions doing, like, gay things. And yeah, yeah, that would be such a good movie. So it's like, it's also to me, like, a sort of, like, the difference between, like, like, kind of like an aesthetic and something, like, actually changing. You know, like, you can aesthetically or affectively like resonate with this character that Disney makes a shit ton of money off of you know I I just kind of go back and forth I think I think I'm really like ambivalent about representation when it comes to like queer characters and like largely heteronormative projects you know I think that there's a way that sometimes like like companies like Disney right might unintentionally tap into like I mean, like, with Elsa, there's, like, tradition of lesbian witches. <laughs> and then, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. as, like, with, like, associations between, like, witches and feminism and witches and lesbianism. And there's, like, a way in which I think that sometimes some, like, terrible, big, stupid company will, like, stumble onto, you know what I mean? And I think that that's kind of what happened with Elsa, like... Okay, I am very well probably just reading way too much into this movie because for whatever weird reason it had an impact on me, even though I wasn't a child when I watched this children's movie. Mm-hmm. But like, I think that there is like the the way that the parents like really tamp down on like, they're like, you can't ever let your sibling know this about you. Yeah. This is never something we can talk about. We have to keep this a secret. Like the way that that then impacts her relationship with her sister. I related to that a lot as someone who grew up in a really homophobic family. Like that's something and that like isolation, like not just between parents and children, but between siblings as well is something that I was like, ooh, this feels (laughs) unfortunately relevant. Um, So I don't know, like, yeah, mixed feelings. No, that's a really good point. And I was and then I was also thinking about like obviously this is maybe just more a sort of part of like the Disney formula for yeah. plot, but like parents being vanished away, right? Or like, magically or they're magically dead. <laughs> but like and that's also I think part of the sort of like growing like coming of age narrative, right? Is that you have to find some sort of responsibility for yourself. But no, I can. I definitely see that also as being like a point of resonance for queer people because you do, in some ways, have to come to terms with things sometimes a lot faster 
than other people around you or without the help and guidance of, of your parents or you know, yeah. elders or something. Yeah. So no, I, I definitely think that could be, I, I definitely think that's valid. And like Elsa sort of like retreat away, you know, like I'm not gonna, like I'm just gonna completely detach myself from all of these people. So I don't have the, the capacity to harm them. Definitely very relatable. And like in terms of, <laughs> again, I read a lot into this movie that is not there. <laughs> but in terms of like, I didn't officially go to conversion therapy, right? But in terms of how a lot of Christian communities handle queerness um, in ways that verge on conversion therapy and become conversion therapy, like, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that when you, like, turn off a part of yourself, you have to turn off so many other parts. Like, you can't just be, like, okay, like, romantic relationships, I will never think about that, and I will never, and you can't just do that and have no repercussions on your relationships or the rest of your life or how you as a person exist. And so, yeah, so, again... <laughs> That was another point where I was like, oh, I feel like a, like a resonance there. No, I think that's like such a great point to make. But just sort of like the idea that all of these, all of these like parts of yourself are interconnected. And so closing off one thing ends up closing off everything, right? Like your mannerisms and the way that you like interact with other people and also just like your, your desires or whatever. I'm Rose, and I know Allie through our queer cinema class. Yeah. Um, Should I go on and say the villain? Yeah, name? go on. <laughs> okay. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to start with the kind of audience part, because I think that's the part I'm, I'm personally more interested in. I think I, I personally am not as interested in trying to figure out, like, what filmmaker co- like coded what character is gay or not if they seem gay to, to audiences then like you were saying about Elsa right then like for that, all right for all intents and purposes are. like we can say that they are and I don't think there's a harm to that especially or even if the original filmmaker didn't intend that so there's that question right about like intent and impact um in terms of audiences or just in general like specifically queer folks seeing Disney Disney characters or Disney villains specifically as queer. Um, I think it's cool in the kind of like um, reclaiming kind of like identification, uh, like seeing yourself in kind of a canonical children's film or like franchise that was such a huge part of my childhood and a lot of people in our generation's childhood. So I think, yeah, I think that's cool. And I think that Honestly, I mean, this is kind of a BS answer, but I think people should, like, see whatever characters they want to see as queer, you know what I mean? Because it's, like, they exist within, in a sense, your imagination, you know? Um, I think that the kind of limitations or one of the other reactions I had when you were laying out the question um, was questions about, like, what performance or like performance of sexuality really means um and and I guess I'm saying that as someone who is queer but like doesn't 
is very rarely like seen by outside people as queer. So to me, I think there there's like some maybe maybe some element to seeing certain ways that people act or speak or like the characters act and speak and saying like oh because they speak this way or because yada yada and I'm not saying I mean clearly there are specific ones like Ursula where it's like very clearly (laughs) taken from a drag queen so but I think in general trying to be like trying to to decipher that coding can have can kind of I don't know I guess buy into or rely on potentially limited understandings of what it means to look and sound queer like certain stereotypes potentially yeah yeah. but but at the same time I think I think that's why I started with saying like if queer folks want to say like this particular character in Disney I think is queer and this is why then I'm like fuck yeah like do it like that's (laughs) fantastic and I'm so happy for you that you think that and that that if that's an empowering feeling for that person then like I'm all for it I think when it becomes hegemonic or it's like, oh, Disney villains are gay because X, Y, and Z. And that, mean, that, that I think, reifies what it means to be gay on the other side, even though it's not necessarily intended. And even though I think it's intended from an empowering stance. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, if, if Disney villains are gay and, like, gay people are Disney, like, if they become interchangeable, right. kind of? Okay. Right. And I think, and that's only the case because of this broader stereotypical understanding of what it means to look and act gay I think you know what I mean but so and that doesn't that comes from heteronormativity so so it's like and I mean and a bunch of other things so that's so that's why I that's why I struggle with the kind of like queer folks seeing queer representation as like a positive thing but also in general as a cultural discourse that might even stem beyond people who identify as queer seeing these villains as queer it's like in what way does that potentially connect to that but I think that, like with the Elsa thing, I I love that <laughs> seeing you know seeing Let It Go as a song about being gay. I, I, I it's it's so perfect, right? And it's like with her character, I feel like that feels different to me than like the Scar, or the Ursula ones that you mentioned, because to me at least there are less I guess markers of her character that would lead to like a stereotypical rendering of her being queer if that makes sense. And, like, there may be more, like, emotional, like, plot-driven, like, song-driven reasons why people feel like she's queer. Um, and I like that because I feel like it's more – I don't know. I mean, I like all of it, but I feel like I'm just – I'm all for, like, nuance and, like, kind of understanding, like, that there's no X equals Y when it comes to the way somebody speaks and dresses and holds themselves and their sexuality. So there's like now, now that Frozen 2 is out and the internet's a thing, there's like a whole discourse, right, on Elsa's sexuality with like so many fans like starting the hashtag like give Elsa a girlfriend and then Disney being like, no, we won't do that. (laughs) And then they made Frozen 2 and they didn't do that. So the whole thing about like the, the discourse about like what the fans want and what the, um, the studio, the company, chooses, like, my, my hot take on this all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but my take on the sort of, like, fan community, Mm. I think, I think 
that's useful insofar as it, it shows like how people are engaging with the material mm-hmm. but and like I, th- I think that's great and I'm not sort of like saying we shouldn't have that kind of representation but I sort of wonder like what happens to artistic creativity and directorial you know output when when there's some sort of like pressure from the audience or from viewers to make a certain kind of thing like to me I I understand that I think it's very like human impulsive like oh I resonated with this character I think because of this reason you should cement this reason in the sequel whatever I totally get that but to me part of the like pleasure of being a viewer is not knowing what's going to happen you know like having that kind of control over the characters and so I, I just think that could create like a kind of toxic environment for like creators and illustrators and, and directors and artists and you know all of these people when you feel like you have to take the story or narrative in a certain direction you know because that's what people want and so, so I don't know I'm not saying you shouldn't ever give the people what they want like I think there should be queer Disney characters but why does it have to be in this, you know, like, why does it have to be in, in this certain context? Um, right. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like, I get it, but I just think, how useful is it, you know? Yeah. No, and I've thought about that, too, of, like, and I think that, I think that, like, okay, so, A, I think that sometimes when audiences read queer coding into a not openly queer film, like I do all the time, um, I think that sometimes that can like give pretty homophobic companies and studios like Disney kind of an out, like, oh, we do have queer representation, you know, like it's kind of, but it's like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know what I mean? It's not like actually open, especially cause like there was a time when that's what you had to do to get queer representation, but like, it's not that time anymore. You know what I mean? Like we're, that's not where we are anymore. So like, um, so I think that, yeah, on one hand, I do think it does sometimes give an out to like kind of shitty companies to do things like that. And then also the thing with the fans though, is like, like, I understand what you're saying. Like, yeah, it can create like a weird toxic environment that like a lot of TV shows have to handle when they have like intense fandoms where like the fans want a certain ending and like the TV shows like, oh, that's not what we were planning. But I think that when, like, I think that the main reason that Disney will not give Elsa a love interest of any kind or, you know what I mean? Like, I think that the main reason behind why they won't let her exist that way is homophobia. You know what I mean? I was also going to say, like, homophobia and capitalism. Like, (laughs) don't want to hurt the box office sales. (laughs) Yeah, like, capitalism-induced homophobia. (laughs) Because, like whoever's creating like I'm sure there are gay people behind the making of Frozen because there are gay people everywhere but like yeah like the studio is not going to do that because then what if people potentially oh do you want to talk about queer baiting (laughs) talk about queer baiting (laughs) so so like historically right um there were specific laws against portraying openly queer characters on screen Right, and then there were laws against framing them positively. Those laws don't exist anymore. They haven't for a while, but there's still a lot of like social stigma, right? But at the same time, like studios like Disney do want 
They want to keep the homophobic money coming, but they also want to get the gay money coming in. So queer baiting or creating a character that the studio strongly suggests or sometimes openly says is gay can be a way to get around that. I don't think they're doing that with Frozen. I think that was pretty unintentional, but they did do that with um, the 2017 Beauty and the Beast. Mm. Um, did you watch that? I didn't watch it, but wasn't there like a huge scandal over, is it Gaston and what's the, LeFou? LeFou. So yeah. I definitely think you can do a reading of LeFou and Gaston as some kind of gay relationship. Also, Gaston would be a fantastic gay villain because he's like the paragon of masculinity. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like he would be like a gym gay. <laughs> gym gay for sure. That's so funny. Right? Um, so I think that that way, like, if they wanted to make a movie from Gaston and LeFou's point of view and where they're gay together, I would totally watch that movie and it had the, would have the potential to be really fun. Yeah. But instead, they really teased that LeFou would be the first openly LGBTQ Disney character. Mm. And they said that, and he's played by Josh Gad, who actually voices Olaf in Frozen. Um, and then a bunch of, like, people boycotted the movie, right? And they were like, no gays in our Beauty and the Beast. And then I watched the movie and he's like, <laughs> it's like, he'll, there'll be a, a shot of him glancing longingly at Gaston. You know what I mean? Like, it still feels like it's more coded than, it's more subtextual than textual still. And I mean, there's a brief shot at the end where he like dances with a man, but like, it's so brief that you could so easily just like blink and miss it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just such a clear, like that's, so that's like where queer baiting gets in yeah. <laughs> into the conversation. Yeah. No, that's what I was like, when you were sort of like talking about like how it still remains really coded. And that was what, like 2017 or something like fairly recently. Yeah. Um, like to me, the first question that like jumped into my mind was like, who's, whose dollars are worth more, you know? Yeah. And so, like, it seems like homophobic dollars are worth more, <laughs> if only because, like, there are maybe more of them, um, which sort of, like, gets at your, one of the things you were talking about earlier, which is, like, who are these, who are these films, like, imagined audiences, you know? Like, is it people who will pick up on subtext? Right. Um, so is it that Disney is counting on, like, a smaller group of box office, you know, buying ticket purchasers who are gay who will be able to sort of like pick up on this and that that will satiate them or that will like suffice for them mm -hmm. um but then they also need to sort of like keep it under wraps somewhat for the the much larger sort of like heterosexual audience or right. the you know, children's audience or like whoever they imagine so this is the end of the disney episode and if you're interested in what sources i used a lot of this came from the book I mentioned earlier, The Tinkerbells and Evil Queens. But another book that I found helpful is Queer Baiting and Fandom, Teasing Fans Through Homoerotic Possibilities. It's a collection of essays edited by Joseph Brennan, and it's super interesting. It was it's very recent. It was published in 2019. So it's a lot of like current perspectives on how queer baiting and queer fandoms function now and have functioned in the past. I really recommend it. Um, so this is this is the final episode of 
I guess like maybe, maybe season one of this podcast. I don't know. Potential season two is kind of TBD at the moment. I don't, I don't know what's happening in my life right now. Um, I made this podcast to fulfill my master's program requirement at Georgetown. Um, but honestly, it's been like a super fun way to talk with different queer people about like, I don't know, movies and their experiences and their ideas, being a an LGBT fan of film and TV shows and media. Um, it can put you in kind of a strange viewing position because like you love and identify with certain genres or films that just like completely don't include you or don't include you in any kind of like non-subtextual way. So I think that like talking with different queer people about how they approach and handle this position has been, (laughs) I don't know, it's been like a way to find the fun in this kind of weird spectator position that I find myself in. 